0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we explore the relationship between food and style. I knew from the start that I never wanted to like hot glue bread onto my body. (laughs) Like I wanted to be able to enjoy it after, and I did. Food,
1: which is so ephemeral, right? It's something that you eat and it disappears. With an image it remains, it stays alive forever.
2: Food and fashion align in that they're both lenses through which to look at culture, right? And they're both also tangible
3: things we can use to express ourselves and our identities.
2: Tune in to Meet in Three, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Asheville, North Carolina. For me, I'm Kat Johnson, HRN's Communications Director, here with my co host and HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman Wadler. Katie, where is it for you?
3: Hey, Kat. Uh, today, happy hour for me is in uh, my home in Connecticut. And um, I am from here making some plans to be back in studio in Roberta's very soon. So, super excited about that. Um, for now, hello from a very, very hot and sticky Connecticut.
2: Yeah, it's a heat wave this week. Um, We're super excited this week to have a special guest on HR and Happy Hour. Without any further ado, we'll go ahead and introduce her. We're welcoming Anna Bornstein, the relief operations lead for World Central Kitchen. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We are... So thrilled to have you. Um, I think most of our listeners will be familiar uh, to a certain degree with World Central Kitchen. Um, uh, but we're really excited to to learn more. um hear about all the work that you've been doing, you know the past year and a half and and before that. Um, And hear a little bit more about your role specifically. So um, we will we will jump back into our conversation very, very soon. Uh, But I'm going to turn it over to Katie really quick for a pretty big announcement on the horizon.
3: Yeah. So thank you, everybody who's tuned in. You know that HR and happy hour is where you can get sort of the inside scoop on our organization. And so any of those kind of big top secret updates are going to be announced here first. And I am so incredibly excited to share with our listeners that Heritage Radio Network has a brand new look coming out very soon. We have been um, going through a rebranding process. We worked with an incredible designer. Well, I'll let Kat give a really quick introduction to who created our new visual identity, but it is Outstanding. And we have a brand new website coming out for all of you. Its um, arrival date is going to be July 6th. So, of course, check back then, Heritage Network.org. We will be shouting it from the rooftops. So, um, Please expect to get very excited new design emails from us, get very excited social media posts from us. This has been in the works for a long time and something that was really refreshing to work on um, during the pandemic. And um, it's going to bring a lot of improvements to being able to access all of our content anywhere you listen to podcasts, but also through our archive on the site. Um, And Kat, do you want to just quickly reveal who our identity designer is?
2: Yeah, this was pretty exciting for us. We were introduced to Paula Cher from Pentagram uh about two years, over two years ago now. Um, and she, I mean, she is I don't like to use the word iconic. I think it's overused, but truly Paula is an iconic designer. Um, she designed many of the most like classic album covers that have ever come out. And so it was exciting that we ended up working with her and her team at Pentagram because in looking at, you know, HRN's lineup of shows and and all these different square podcast art, uh, pieces of art, they kind of are reminiscent of album covers. And so getting her eye on that and kind of understanding uh, what the ethos of HRN is and how, you know, we are this network that connects all these uh, various different shows was, was really, really cool. And I think that in the end, you know, the, the new visual identity that we're, we're going to have is, is going to really take HRN as a network to the next level. So yeah, couldn't, just couldn't be more thrilled with, with working with Paula and Pentagram. It's going to be incredible.
3: Thank you so much um, and Kat for really spearheading that relationship and the design process. It was really, really fun to go through that and we can't wait to share it. So um, please stay tuned and thank you for sticking with us during that network announcement. We are going to turn to a really, really incredibly hefty topic. We're going to turn to an organization that you know so well, um, many of you already World Central Kitchen, but who's full scope of activities is always blowing my mind. Um, Anna, we want to dive in and start talking about some of your work and to learn a a little more about the mission of World Central Kitchen. Um, Is that something, could you just start with giving us kind of the broad scopes overview of what WCK does?
4: Absolutely. Um, So, as simply as we can say it, uh, WCK, World Central Kitchen, nourishes communities and strengthens economies during times of crisis and, and beyond that. So um, primarily we do that through food. Um, we have a couple of different arms in which we do that. So the one being the relief work that we do, disaster response work, which is the team that I'm a part of primarily. Um, so in our disaster response work, we you know mobilize of rapid responses in in response to natural disasters or other types of crises. Traditionally, we set up central kitchen, kitchens, uh, as one might assume, and end up cooking at really high volume or, or at large, at mass, um, bringing on local contractors and engaging volunteers in the locations where we activate um, to get hot, nutritious meals out to communities that have been affected by those disasters or crises. Um, More recently, we've begun partnering with restaurants to incorporate into that work and local community organizations, local chefs, um, really making our efforts as community-led as possible. Um, So our our responses look a little bit different each time. Every crisis is different. Every community is different. So the how of it um, is, is unique to each situation. But that is our basic model for our relief work. We also have our resilience arm, which is our longer term programs um, and development work. So in certain cases, after an acute crisis has has passed, um, World Central Kitchen looks to continue to support that community with a longer term commitment um, when we have made some assessment and and feel we can continue to uh, provide support and impact to strengthen those local communities and local food systems. Um, those types of programs include culinary training. Um, we have a, a, a school in Haiti where we train chefs and do food safety and sanitation trainings. Uh, clean cooking is a huge aspect of that. So moving away from wood and charcoal towards to cleaner energy sources. Um, and our economic empowerment is kind of a, a umbrella term for a lot of different things, but our food producers network falls under that. So All of those programs are aimed at really strengthening local food systems and food producers, um, again, to really kind of focus on community-led efforts in bolstering uh, food production.
3: And can you tell us about yourself a little bit and how you came into this role?
4: Sure. Um, I came to World Central Kitchen um, just over a year and a half ago, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, prior to that, I was working in disaster response in a medical capacity um, on a medical disaster response team and had intersected with World Central Kitchen in several different um, crisis responses. When the pandemic was beginning to set in in March, um, I think I had most recently seen WCK in Puerto Rico after the earthquakes in January of 2020. And early March of 2020, um, I was in touch with their team and flew out to Washington, DC to try and help figure out uh, how World Central Kitchen was going to think about responding to what was clearly becoming a more global crisis with COVID 19 beginning to spread. Um, So I came on board as a contractor at the time and was there from kind of the get go of the COVID response in helping figure out what our, how we were going to take the sort of traditional models or, historical work of WCK and and adapt it to what was currently happening all over the globe at that point. Um, and I have been a full-time relief operations lead with them ever since.
2: So Anna, I think one thing that, you know, most people who have some familiarity with WCK know about you is just how fast you're able to respond to crises. You know, mm-hmm. it's like You'll be there before the hurricanes even fully passed, right? How do you yeah. how do you respond so quickly to major crises like that and get on the ground so fast?
4: Yeah. Um it, it that's actually one of the things that really drew me to World Center Kitchen as a, a person working in the space of disaster response. And you're right, it is um almost like magic how quickly we can get on the ground or, or get to be with those communities um, being affected. So, you know, I think a lot of that um, comes from a team of really dedicated people. It's, it's a small team, and we are working very hard and around the clock and, and monitoring what's going on globally and domestically. Um, so in terms of things like hurricanes, kind of tracking the storms that are developing. As we know, the Gulf has been a pretty active place for storms in the last couple of years, um, not on wood, hopefully not this year, but we'll see. So I think our monitoring is um, really astute and our our commitment is that, you know, wherever there is a fight that people may eat, uh, we'll be there. So we really try to live up to that um, and try to get our teams on the ground as quickly as possible so we can make an assessment of, you know, what the impact may be, um, how we can engage with the local community to utilize the resources that, that are already there to support the, those folks and support that community. Um, I, I've said this already several times, but I think locally led has really proven to be one of the most effective models of doing this work. And so yeah, you have to be there to know what that's going to look like and to connect with the people that are there that have that community knowledge and, and historical knowledge. Cause I think oftentimes a lot of the places where we activate, um, Unfortunately, it's, it's not new in, you know, like the tropics and, and Central America, places like the Gulf. Um, California is, is no stranger to fires. So communities that have been through similar crises in the past tend to have a lot of experience that we can really learn from as well. So the quicker we can get there, um, the better we can access that knowledge and build those relationships. Um, and, and our ability to do so also really, I think, uh, depends a lot on our Wonderful community of supporters and and donors that um, are looking to help us make sure we can continue that work.
2: And then, of course, what WCK stepped up in many places and for a really long time with COVID. I mean, that's a very different scale of a problem and crisis than you know a storm hitting in a specific region or or town. Um, How did you had? how did the model change? um, Or what did you have to do differently to respond to COVID-19 that was impacting, you know, everywhere all at once, essentially? Yeah, that's a great question. And um,
4: you know, I think that was the big question and the big puzzle uh, in the beginning. And I think if we all think back to the beginning weeks and months, um, we didn't know what, Covid was going to turn into right. So, uh, WCK's initial response to Covid nineteen was in Japan actually, with um, one of the cruise ships that was quarantined there, um, with folks on board that had been had contracted Covid nineteen. And so, I think one of WCK's strengths is uh, recognizing an immediate problem and adapting with an immediate answer and. Of course, thinking about longevity and, and how we take that forward, but not at the expense of not moving immediately, right? So um, I think that mentality was brought to COVID. They sent a team to Japan to address that issue without really knowing how to how to deal with a quarantine cruise ship with a virus that no one had encountered before. And I think the whole world was living with question marks around that. Um, it really has called on, as I've said many times now, uh, local knowledge and really building our network of, of chefs and restaurants. Um, I think a huge, huge part of what's come from the pandemic has been our Restaurants for the People work, um, which began in the U.S. and, and expanded internationally. But um, partnering with local restaurants to utilize that infrastructure and those resources. And again, that kind of institutional knowledge of how to produce food quickly and safely and distribute that food to communities in need. Um, So I think that was a a big adaptation of the more traditional disaster response model world central kitchen has of a a central kitchen and and our team's cooking food at mass, right. And then distributing out, but um, in taking into consideration the limitations of COVID and the and the restrictions of movement and and the unknowns of how the virus was spreading initially, um, we really had to kind of come up with, for lack of a better word, a, a hodgepodge of, of the different models that we knew. So in DC, we set up a kind of mass central kitchen, and that was a, a practice that we were good at, right, but had to incorporate this new un- underpinning of COVID safety and, and what that meant. Um, how do we keep people distant while still producing thousands of meals every day and package those individually versus using communal trays that people would scoop out of, you know, everything needed to be individual. Um, how do we do that in a way that is environmentally responsible? How do we source materials that we can use to package while not expanding our carbon footprint too much? Um, so a, a lot of those questions, obviously, initially and and as COVID continued, we were really just trying what we, different models and different um, approaches. A lot of my work initially, when I joined, was was the safety aspect, um, and of course, in a disaster response, you're always thinking about team safety and safety of the communities you're impacting, uh, especially in disaster zones. And as we know, uh. An airborne virus that is spreading around the globe is a, a very different animal. So, thinking through not only with our team, but with the restaurants that we were partnering with, the communities that we were working with, the community based organizations helping to distribute meals, um, how to set up a structure of production, distribution, how to reimagine spaces with our restaurant partners to, to do that safely and, and keep everyone safe in the process. Um, it was a real reimagining of, of a lot of our work while also calling on the expertise of of chefs within our team and around the world of, you know, people need food always and particularly in a crisis that is limiting people's mobility and access to that resource. So figuring out the logistics of um, continuing to get people nutritious meals and doing that in a safe way for our team, for our partners, and for the people we're serving. It, it was quite the the math problem to figure out. I,
3: I think it's just so incredible, um, you know, if, for from our point of view, you know, HRN, we're a nonprofit, we're a small organization. You know, we think of World Central Kitchen being a pretty big organization and to have this level of rapid response and nimble decision-making is something I think we're going to keep coming back to uh, over and over again. I just am completely blown away um, about how quickly you're able to not only respond to locations all over the world, but to really unforeseen issues. Um, you know, it's not, I don't think it's shocking to the world that we had a pandemic, but, um, you know, we don't have that same ability of prediction that you might with other types of disasters. And I have just a a question, um, particularly with the sort of safety aspect, Anna, and in dealing with mobilizing restaurants and food, I'm so curious, how did you, um, parse information sources around that because something that we have been running into over the last year, particularly around food, was a real lack of clear information and understanding about best practices and food safety with COVID-19. And um you know what you know, it took such a long time, I think, for the general consensus to be that okay, this virus might not be likely transmitted through food. But you all were already working as all of those guidelines were changing. So what did you use for um, gathering information around that topic, and how did you ultimately make the call around what were the best handling practices um, and safety des- determinations for your team and for the communities you were in?
4: Great question, and um, a, a question that really, honestly, scared me in the beginning of all of this. Um, it, as you as you said, it was again, we can remember in the beginning, such an unknown territory, everything that COVID touched was Mm -hmm. an unknown territory. So um, for me coming in, and kind of being tasked with team safety and and COVID-19 safety, um, and the intersection then of food safety, as you mentioned, also, was very daunting. And and to look to the experts and, and seeing them grappling with the same questions, you know, was scary. But I think my initial thought to your question is people need food, that regardless of what's going on, right? We As a sur- survival aspect of being a human being, we need food. So I don't think there was ever a moment of saying, oh, no, we can't do this because of COVID or because of that. It was, how do we do this? So... From that point, I certainly knew, and I think our team knew that it, as we see in most of our models, it was going to be a community effort and um, a team effort in figuring out how to do that safely with such limited information about how the virus was spreading, about how it might be foodborne, surfaceborne. So, in those really initial stages, um, I personally and our team, you know, was working with several different institutions. I had many, many calls with, uh, George Washington university with experts at Harvard, um, the Aspen Institute and the James Beard foundation, different community-based organizations and different NGOs also asking those same questions, whether it be food or, or other resources trying for trying to get out to folks. Um, it kind of became a think tank of, okay, we know that people need this set of resources, right. And we know they need them quickly and for a long time. So how do we do that safely? Um, a lot of infectious disease specialists I had a lot of phone calls with infectious disease specialists and trying to understand as much as we could about what we presumed or could possibly presume based on past pandemics or past viruses and food safety information. Um, so as we were beginning, again, kind of fighting the clock on we need to get food to people, we need to get these things to people and do it safely. We re- I really focused in on, uh, the operational and production aspects. So at, at the time surfaces were a real concern, right? We weren't sure how long the virus lasted on surfaces or which types of surfaces it might cling to more. So really implementing stringent, stringent, uh, sanitizing practices and, and regimens for whatever type of operation it was. If it was a restaurant partner working on something, if it was our team at, at, National Park cooking, um, making sure that everything we were using, everything that was being touched, everyone had PPE on. I know we're all probably familiar with that term by now, but gloves and masks and, um, eye protection, changing clothes on their way once they arrived at work. And once they left work, um, I, I imagine people can remember the time of coming home and stripping off of everything and putting it in the washer and dryer. Um, so, just building as many firewalls as possible for, for tr- to limit transmission of potential virus or potential infection. Um, again, I've, I've said this before, but kind of reimagining space and and roles with our restaurant partners and with our team. Um, people that were doing deliveries or that were taking t- food to communities or bringing supplies back to the kitchens that we might need to cook did not cross certain thresholds inside of the production space. Um, setting up different stations for different parts of the production of the food, working with our chefs and our chef partners to figure out recipes that were um, simple to make. And the steps of it didn't require a lot of space or could conserve space as much as possible and stayed within the confines of food safety and and timing in terms of heat loss and, you know, cooling things. Um, It was a massive, massive undertaking to kind of consider all of those different aspects um, of what it would take to when you think about producing a plate of food at home, if you're going to make yourself dinner, you don't necessarily think about every micro movement that you're making. Right. And we really had to take every micro movement into consideration. So it was certainly, certainly a group effort in first understanding exactly what each step of that process and then coming together to figure out what the best practice was going to be. And as our, as the information evolved and we learned more things like, okay, cardboard seems to be a safer surface or, okay, we got to a stage where maybe surfaces aren't the the primary concern of transmission. We adjusted our protocols and our procedures and talked with our trusted partners about what the best practice at that point would be. So it's an ever evolving process and and still to this day, but um, a, a really, really complex one for sure.
3: Thank you so much for that. And I, I, you know, I just have to say, I really appreciated seeing Jose Andres on Instagram live. I think it was with Dr. Fauci. That was super great. Um, Mm -hmm. but we never quite got the public messaging about that level of detail around Mm -hmm. precautions with food. And, um, I am so interested to hear all of this and I think it's, um, so helpful and extraordinary, um, you know that that's that's like yet another facet, right, of coming in and doing this relief work. Is um, you know you're not only juggling the the on-site logistics, but uh, this sort of um, evolving guidance around precaution. Um, mm-hmm. So we are going to take a very quick break. We're going to have a word from our sponsor, and we will be right back with more of HR and Happy Hour in just a minute.
2: Welcome back to HR and Happy Hour. We are back with our guest today, Anna Bornstein. She's the Relief Operations Lead at World Central Kitchen, also known as WCK. Um, So, we've just spent a good bit of time talking about COVID because how could we not? It has been a major focus of your organization as well as everyone's life for the past year and a half. Um, But, Anna, tell us, you know, are you still doing COVID relief work now? And also, what other relief work are you currently doing around the globe? Sure. Um,
4: Yeah, so, you know, Chefs for America was a a big part of our COVID response effort, as was Restaurants for the People. Um, So we are still active in a number of different cities uh, around the U.S., places like D.C., New York, Oakland, uh, Nashville, Miami. Um, So we are still engaged in some of that part of our work. Um, We also have been responding to uh, natural disasters and, and other crises throughout this year. So in addition to COVID or underpinned by COVID, I suppose. Um, recently, we responded to a volcano eruption in St. Vincent's, uh, had a team down there. Um, we are currently working in uh, India and, and Gaza as newer efforts, as well as some of our longer running programs in Uh, Venezuela, Colombia, uh, Mexico and Tijuana. Uh, Our India work is a bit of a hybrid of an international response, but um, of course, COVID COVID related. So as I think most of us have seen in the news for the last several months, the COVID crisis in India has kind of remained um, and been a significant, significant issue there still. So we responded in um, early May to support the healthcare workers and hospitals there that were still seeing pretty massive spikes in COVID cases um, and partnered with uh, a local chef, Chef Sanjeev Kapoor, as well as local hotels and, and restaurant partners on the ground in India to produce meals at mass as we tend to do. And support those healthcare workers or or COVID warriors as the, um, our Indian partners call them through the continued crisis there. So that work is ongoing. Um, to date, I think we've served nearly a million meals at 950,000 meals, I think was the most current number I saw. Um, yeah. And it's a pretty impressive number on its own. Um, over the last two months, no less. So a really massive effort there and with wonderful local partners. Um, We started in Mumbai. We're now in 16 different cities all across uh, India as a country, um, doing about 20,000 meals a day and continuing that effort. um, As I think the, the most recent news I've seen is that cases are, the situation is beginning to improve and support is still appreciated and needed. So, still actively working there. Um, our work in Gaza uh, was in response to kind of the flaring of, of conflict in that region and working again with a local community-based organization, local partner, uh, who's provided aid in that area, in that region for many, many years, and was, um, has a very strong presence there. So working with that local partner to support uh, affected families that have been displaced by the ongoing conflict there um with nutritious meals and i believe that program will be coming to a close in in the next week or so um, as our local partners have kind of assessed and seen the situation improving as as far as our work there which is always a a positive thing to hear so those are our two most recent operations and then as i mentioned kind of our longer running programs in central america um,
3: and mexico Anna, something that ties together so many of these projects is um, the part of WCK's mission about um, strengthening local economies. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how that fits into maybe some of the recent work you just talked about?
4: Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the most, that is an aspect of World Central Kitchen's work that has predated my time, absolutely, and and predated COVID, certainly. I I think the experience of COVID globally can really points to that, the importance of that. Um, I know in the States and kind of around the world, the the restaurant industry really felt the impact of COVID, right? And as did many, many, many others. Um, But part of the restaurants for the people model, part of the kind of strategy behind that was okay how do we of course get food to people that need it um, and support restaurants and food producer partners and local economies and when you think i've actually learned myself quite a bit about the the ripple effect um, and the supply chain of the restaurant industry and of the food industry and just how many parts of the economy are connected to that that you might not typically think about um, Fishermen and fisheries, and, and how that how that salmon gets to your plate, right? The, the truck drivers and the delivery people that are distributing those food, uh, those ingredients, that type of thing. So, I think we see a lot on we see a lot of the end product of of that the the meals that go out or the plate of food in front of us. But when you think through all of the steps it took to get there, there's a really massive impact on economy um, that comes from that plate of food. So. The different aspects of World Central Kitchen's work from our disaster response work and our resilience programming, which is really focused on that strengthening food systems, um, takes that into consideration. How do we, again, kind of address from a disaster response perspective, how do we address the acute need here with consideration to the larger system that's at work? Um, COVID, as I've said, our Restaurants for the People model really played that out. So supporting restaurants as best we could supporting local food producers and um, where we procured from and where our partners were procuring from the packaging, as I mentioned earlier, we've seen a huge spike in the need for individual packaging through this time, right? So how do we keep smaller uh, providers of that in business? Um, when we activate internationally or or in local communities, trying to source as much as we can from that local community, without causing sort of in, an imbalance in that ecosystem, sort of so to speak. Um, so calling on local producers and, and farmers, if we're able to, um, I think our work in Saint Vincent's really really highlighted that. You know, we're often in pretty isolated or remote areas, or or at least post disaster, pretty cut off from supply chain in certain aspects. So getting creative with both getting creative and, like I said, looking around and seeing, okay, what's already here? These, you know, folks are living and existing and producing food and farming and fishing here, and they 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 know best where to, where to access those resources, right? So, knowing that we have an ability to really bolster what exists in a lot of these communities um, and follow their lead in where to source from, um, how to distribute who, what local folks to bring on that have the best local knowledge about distribution pathways. I think the presence of WCK really, really just kind of highlights what, what's already there a lot of the time. Um, and I, our resilience work is, is certain, certainly speaks to that truth, um, in many, many, many ways.
3: Yeah. It's so important to be sort of aware of those, um, supply chain fluctuations and that impact. um, I think that the number is during, you know, during ordinary times, not during disaster, that 90 cents of every dollar spent in restaurants goes back to that local economy. And that's through wages, but also through procurement. Um, And so, yeah, just being aware of like what happens when you come in and you need large quantities and then what happens um, with the exit as well. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I, I wonder, um, I, I want to get an update on Chefs for America and what's happening with that. We're also, um, we would love to know more about the process of um, sort of how did you decide which chefs and restaurants to work with? Um, and are there still opportunities for chefs and restaurants to get involved?
4: Sure. Um, chefs for America has been uh, sort of the gift that keeps on giving. It is evolved several times as I mentioned earlier it's ongoing in several different cities um around the states if I'm not mistaken um we have served just over 36 million meals I believe um through this program and just about 50 million million dollars put back into the restaurant economy so on the whole it's been an incredibly successful effort um to, to the question of how we identified partners to work with, um, you know, I think as we have spoken about, um, really focusing on independently owned restaurants and recognizing that kind of restaurants can be the heartbeat of a community in a lot of ways, not just in terms of supply chain and, and economy, but socializing and community and um kind of the local watering hole right where folks where folks come together and so really wanting to make sure we could support those partners as best we could so i know we've seen a lot of heartbreaking closures around the world and around the states um and that's been really really difficult but in kind of identifying who to work with you know it's, there's always going to be more restaurants, I think, than we are potentially able to work with. But, um, seeing who was first of all willing, who was, who was knocking at the door, who we were able to get in touch with. Um, again, kind of, as I spoke about earlier with, in terms of safety practices, it was really important to us that our partners were able to engage in this program and, and produce these meals safely. So, um, certainly working with partners and, walking them through kind of the protocols we were coming up with and their space and their menu and the community they were looking to serve or working in and what made the most sense, um, for their circumstance. Uh, but independently owned restaurants was a, a really big tenant of the, the work that we were doing. Um, and always across our work, not just in chefs for America, but trying to make sure that we're serving food that speaks to the community that's being served. Right that we're working in. So um, again, kind of partnering with our, with different restaurants to work on recipes and, and cuisine and kind of come up with weekly menus um, that made sense both in terms of cost efficiency for the partners we're working with and and palate, I suppose, um, and spirit of the community that we're working in. So that was, that was very important to us to maintain that sense of dignity in the food that we were serving, both for the producers and, and the folks eating the food
3: this is so fascinating. I could go on for hours here, Anna, we are um, coming up to the end of our time and I have a burning question that I want to ask. Um, and that is, um, to say, so we have talked about a lot of takeaways, um, from your time at WCK and, um, it's so fascinating that you started sort of near the beginning of the pandemic. Um, So we talked about a lot of takeaways that have come out of responding to the pandemic. Um, Have there been any lessons that could be applied to other relief organizations that you might be able to share?
4: Oh, that's a great question. As, as someone that came from another relief organization, um, I, I think the biggest lesson to me is, uh, sharing is, is working together (laughs) as fundamental or silly or kind of Sesame street as that might sound. Um, I don't think any of what we have done and accomplished as an organization could necessarily have been accomplished without partnership and without sharing information and sharing ideas. And I think that, uh, the, the isolating, aspect of COVID, um, for individuals and for companies and organizations and countries. um, I think we've had to find different ways to connect with one another and to understand what was going on. Right. And if I had to think through all of what I've described on this podcast by myself, or I'm sorry, on the show by myself, I, um, certainly would have been too overwhelmed to figure it out. And it was only really in all of those conversations I talked about in the beginning of figuring out the safety aspects, all of the organizations that we've partnered with in Chefs for America, in Restaurants for the People, in our disaster responses um, internationally, all of the local communities that have come together and been willing to share their local knowledge, share their experiences, share their ideas um, without fear of of, being dismissed or any of that, it's really what made any of this possible. And so I think that the, I think that the relief world and the aid world is certainly founded on the idea of supporting one another. Right. And I think that really has to ring true for the organizations that are providing that aid. We all have different expertise. We all have different resources. We all have different ideas and different lenses through which we're looking at a puzzle or looking at a problem. And I, I think responses are really bolstered and improved tremendously and exponentially by collaboration, um, and coming up with creative ways to, to collaborate when there might be roadblocks or limitations. So personally, I think that's really been my biggest takeaway here is, um, collaboration, collaboration, collaboration.
2: Here, here. Absolutely. Um, so Anna, my very last question for you today is how do people get involved? How do people support the work of WCK? Where can they go to learn more? Certainly. Um, our website
4: I think is our most central, central location for kind of all WCK happenings, um, get to know our team. So WCK.org, uh, but you can always go there to learn more about us. We also have a newsletter that goes out um, to your email. So if you want to subscribe to that newsletter, it's always got great updates about what we're immediately doing, what the most recent happenings are. Um, so I certainly recommend subscribing to that. My mom does; she loves it. Uh, we often use Volunteer Hub um, and different uh, t- to pull in volunteers for activations. Um, more projects that we're working on. So keeping an eye on where we're activating. Our Instagram is a great place to stay up to date on where we are active. Um, At Kitchen is our handle there and and on Twitter as well. Um, So I think follow us on social media and our our team is really excellent at keeping everyone up to date on current happenings and current opportunities. So we're always looking to have more folks, folks join us.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, and Anna, thank you. Thank you for joining us today to tell us a little bit more about World Central Kitchen, the work that you've been doing, not just in COVID, but all around the world for many years. And and for telling us a little bit more about your role. I just think it's so fascinating to hear about the the people that make World Central Kitchen happen and 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 do this work day to day. So thank you so much
4: of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was, um, I was excited leading up to it and it's, it's been really lovely to spend this time with you guys, if not remotely. <laughs> exactly.
3: Thank you so much. And I, I, you know, I, I can say, I wish we were at our Costa Rica studios with you, um, but, uh, they are still to be built. Um, so we really look forward to, uh, that, but, um, and hopefully seeing you in New York city soon. Um, but I I would say I would love to do part two of this, where we get the day in the life of, of Anna. I'm sure it's different every single day. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think that it's so fascinating. We're so grateful to you and to World Central Kitchen for all the work that you all do.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I'll start making my notes now for part two.
2: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Amazing. Thank you. Well, thanks, Katie. Um, I'm Kat. We are your hosts of HR and Happy Hour, and thank you so much for listening. And stay tuned. We'll be back soon with more HR and Happy Hour. Thank you so much, Kat. Talk to you all soon. HR and Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter.